Dear Father, as we come before you, we really pray that uh, as we come before you, as in every week, our hearts will be softened and our minds will be open to instruction, that the Holy Spirit will be active in our hearts to instruct us from your word, uh, to make us aware that uh, there is a greater reality than the, what we see every day, and indeed uh, that we need to fill our minds and be transformed uh, so that we may live for your glory and for eternity in heaven. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I read a, an article not too long ago. Uh, I can't even remember where I read it, uh, but it was a, an article, uh, I think it was an American newspaper, about how they'd done a survey uh, just from asking people on the street, uh, not Christians, but just uh, the men on the road, and uh, they were asking them about uh, religious issues. And the surprising thing was that uh, they asked uh, people, how many of you believe in heaven? And these were not Christians or anybody, they just asked them generally how many believe in heaven. And more than 80% of Americans said that they believed in heaven, regardless of, you know, whether they were Christians or not. But then they then asked them, a subsequent question was, how many of you believe in hell? Uh, and only less than 40% of people believed in hell. So I guess either Americans are very optimistic or uh, there's a strange dichotomy in the understanding of uh, what's happening in eternity. But I think it does accurately reflect the mood of society, even in Singapore today, that more people will believe in heaven or think about heaven than hell. Because, uh, you know, all you have to do is look at the newspaper, right? Whenever some famous celebrity dies, they're always in heaven. Right? So Michael Jackson, he's in heaven. Princess Diana, he's, she's also in heaven. Everybody's in heaven as long as you're famous, right? And uh, the, the, the problem is that hell seems to be marginalized and pushed to the side, where it's, it's a really unpleasant topic and... You shouldn't really talk about it because if not, people will look at you as if you're picking your nose in public. So people tend to think that, uh, you know, heaven, uh, sorry, you can preach about heaven or talk about heaven, but hell is something which uh, is really a big no-no. That only, you know, these mad fire and brimstone preachers talk about hell, or maybe it's just the invention of the medieval church, and if you ignore it, it will go away. But I think the, the problem that we have, especially as we come to the Bible, is that we have the clear testimony of Jesus. And uh, Jesus is very clear about hell. In fact, uh, some people call Jesus the theologian of hell. Now, for some of you who have your snazzy uh, iPhone applications, which can do searches, if you ever do a search in the Bible for the word hell, you'll find that 14 times in the New Testament, uh, hell is mentioned. And of those 14 times, 12 of those mentions of hell come from Jesus. So Jesus, far from being this uh, meek and mild loving person. He is the person in the New Testament talks most about hell. And I thought that it would be helpful to look at today's uh, parable, even though we ha- we're going to probably study Luke next year, but I think it's good to look at it just from the context of seeing what we can draw from today's parable about hell. Because uh, many commentaries will say that this passage is one of the most complex parables, and its main themes is about hell. And I like uh, the structure that this pastor Paul Cloud suggested. He said, actually, it's, it's very simple parables about two men, two destinies, and five brothers. Right? And actually, when you look at the story, it's, it's very simple. It's about two, two people, and two destinies, and, and five brothers. So let's look first about the two men. Right? It says there in verse 19, it's a very simple story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked at his sores. Now, uh, the first man is simply described as a rich man. Uh, But he's not just any 
ordinary sort of rich man. He's an exceedingly rich man. Uh, it probably doesn't mean very much for us today, but it says there, in the first thing we notice is that he's dressed in purple. Now, being dressed in purple is not something where you can just pop into a Giordano, right, or Uniqlo, and pick out your, 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 your purple shirt or pants. Because in those days, purple was a very, very rare color. Apparently, you had to extract it from these snails, which were very hard to find. And, and they were so rare that only usually kings or high officials wore purple. So, on his outside, outer garments, he wore purple, a color which only kings and very high officials wore. But then it says that he, he also wore fine linen. And that probably referred to his undergarments. You know, he was wearing very fine handmade underpants and underclothes. Hey, imagine today, how many of you are wearing like uh, silk underwear? Nobody, right? You don't have to put it in your hands, it's okay, right? But, but, you know, it's that sort of thing, you know, only the really rich people sort of wear these very exotic clothes. And this one, he's, he's wearing fine linen in his underclothes. But not only that, it says that he lived in luxury every day. Every day was a banquet, right? Every day he would be going to a five-star restaurant in the Marina Bay Sands, uh, cooked by uh, one of those famous chefs, and he'd be driven around in his Rolls Royce or his Bentley. And then it goes on to say that uh, even further down, it says in verse 20, uh, Lazarus was laid at his gate. So not only did he dress well, and he ate well, and he lived well, he lived in a very expensive house. Because the gate here, that is mentioned there in verse 20, right? Uh, sorry, not verse 20. Verse 20 uh, is it the verse 20? Yeah, it's at the gate, right? This gate is not your, your HDB grill, okay? But the grate, this gate that is mentioned there is, a, is those huge, ornate gates that they have at temples. Or, or, or big buildings. That's, that's the size of his house. So this man here, he's got luxurious clothes, a luxurious lifestyle, he's got a luxurious house. But you notice we're told nothing else about him. We're not told his name, his occupation, but he's defined by his wealth. So if, if you can imagine the ob- obituary of this man, uh, if you look in the Straits Times, right, the, the, the page next to the sports section, right, uh, you'll see that if he, when he dies, he'll be nameless and pictureless, all it will say is he's a very, very rich man. That's his identity. But then we are then introduced to another person. And this person is called Lazarus. Now, it's very important here, his name, because in all the other parables of Jesus, nobody is ever given a name. If you notice, this is the only time in, in, a, in a parable that, that someone is given a name. And Lazarus is a very important name because Lazarus literally means someone that God, God helps or someone who is dependent upon God. So here is this person called uh, God helps or dependent on God. And he's, he seems to be in a very bad, bad situation because he's a beggar and he's laid at the gate. Uh, it's not as if he is tired and he lies down for a nap and puts up his feet because it is a comfortable place. But he is literally so weak that someone probably left him there and he has no place to go. And his skin is covered with sores. Right, he's got ulcers and abscesses on his skin. And then <clears throat> it says there that he is there because he longs to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Maybe, uh, apparently in those days, uh, they didn't have a cloth or tissue right, to wipe the plates down. So after each course, they would just take bread and wipe the plate down and throw it onto the floor. And that's what Lazarus was waiting to eat. You know, that's sort of the picture. He's waiting to eat the bread that was fallen from the table. But if that picture is not pathetic enough, the very last sentence of verse 20 says, even the dogs came and licked at his sores. Okay, it's, it's, it's a really pathetic picture because he's so weak and helpless that these dogs, and again last week we talked about dogs, right? Dogs are not these 
clean animals that you keep in your flats, which you know you brush your teeth and clean your paws. No, these are dirty, filthy, mongrel, uh, filthy animals, right? And they, he's so weak that they come and lick his sores and his abscesses. Uh, I mean, you think of how pathetic that picture is, but even from a Jewish point of view, that would make him unclean before God, which may even make things worse. So here the parable begins with two men, this rich man and this poor man called Lazarus. And now it moves on to two destinations. Because in verse 22 it says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, uh, this is where we start looking at uh, the picture of hell. And uh, a few things sort of come to the fore, isn't it? Uh, first thing is that uh, this picture shows that hell is real. I think Jesus is trying to show in no uncertain terms that hell is real. It doesn't matter what this rich man believed before he died, whether he believed in hell or not, but he, he believed in hell after he died, isn't it? Like someone said, it doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or an agnostic in life, everybody becomes a believer in hell in the end. Right, and this is what happens here. Because what happens is, if you look at this um, uh, picture very closely, it says there in verse 22 that the angel carried Lazarus to Abraham's side. So where we go uh, after we die is not uh, based on our own uh, decision. It is we are carried there. We are transported to either hell or heaven. And it's irrelevant whether you believe in it or not. Because it seems to suggest in this parable that there are only two destinations. There's the comfort of heaven or the agony of hell. So it's almost as if you know, saying to yourself, okay, I, I don't really believe in gravity, so I'll throw myself off a, a tall building. But then you will believe in gravity when the concrete hits you, right? Or you don't believe in drowning when you decide to swim in the ocean, but you, you will start believing in drowning, that you need oxygen, uh, when the water starts going up your nostril. And that's what uh, this passage seems to be saying to us, that it didn't matter whether the rich man believed in hell or not, he was in hell after he died. And in verse 25, it seems to suggest as well, it seems to say very clearly, that what this man did, what the two people did in this life, matters to what happens in the eternity. Because in verse 25, it says that, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here, but you are in agony. Now, uh, what is it that uh, the rich man did uh, that in this life that led him to being in agony in the life to come? Uh, this is where we need to pay attention to the, the context of uh, this parable. Is it because he wore purple? God doesn't like purple. Or is it because he lived in luxury? Is it because he had a luxurious house? It doesn't seem to suggest that because... If you look at verse 22, Abraham was in heaven. And we know from the Old Testament that Abraham was a rich man. He, w he was a landowner. He had many animals. So, Abraham was rich, but yet he was in heaven. Why is it this rich man is in an agony in hell? Well, the context is very important. Like we always say, context 
Context, context, we must always understand the context. So come back with me to verse 13 and 14 in chapter 16. And you'll see the context in which Jesus is preaching this parable or teaching this parable to the crowd. He says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In verse 14, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So what is the context telling us here? Well, the context is saying that this parable is directed to people who love money. Uh, particularly the Pharisees who love money. And that's why the picture of this man was all about money. He's, he's, he's defined by his money. He's defined by his wealth. He loves his wealth. And that's why uh, you can see that uh, if, you, if you look at this passage, um, he knows about Lazarus. He knows Lazarus' name. You look at the parable, he knows who Lazarus is. He treats Lazarus as a servant, right? Send, you know, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to come and help me? So he knows Lazarus, he knows his name, but yet during his lifetime, he never lifted a finger to help Lazarus. He never helped him at all. He, 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 was, he, was, he had all this money, money beyond what he could do with, but yet he was not generous and it reflected his life because his life was all about loving money and his identity was all about money. So I like uh, this, uh, what this... Um, person Soren Kierkegaard said he said if you build your identity on anything but God it is a sin right? that's what idolatry is about if you build uh, your identity on anything apart from loving and serving God that, that's a sin it's idolatry because you are serving something that is not God and you have made it God you've worshipped something that is, is a, a created thing so I think even as we come to this very early stage, it's, it's an important point to reflect on ourselves. What do we build ourselves on? What do we build our lives on? What do we see our ultimate value in? Is it uh, our money, our power, our career, our family, our comfort, uh, people's approval? Is that what we build our identity on? Is that what is, uh, we need to have if not we are nothing? Well then, that's idolatry and that's actually not living and serving God as the center of our lives. Because as Christians, um, uh, this is where I'm going to move away from the passage a little bit, but as Christians, it says that we must always set our minds on the, on the eternal things. And if we set our minds on the eternal things, we will always set it on God. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, this is what it says. Right? It says, Since then you have been raised of Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, so you also, then also, you also will appear with Him in glory. See, if we take this principle to heart uh, in terms of the rich man Lazarus and our identity as Christians, we must see that we must always be living this life in Jesus, in God, because we're, we're mindful of the life to come, isn't it? That's why I keep saying, Set your mind on things above. Set your minds on the things above. Because that's where we belong in eternity. That's where our future is. Do you live with a mindset of 
what I do now will affect where I will be in the future. What I do today affects where I'll be in the future. Because if we think only of this world, the now and here, if we're earthly minded, then only the things of earth will, will matter. And our priorities and why we do things will be different. So if I only live for the now, uh, my, my whole life will be based on impressing other people or making a mark on this world or getting rich or being happy or having pleasure in this life. But if I live for the world to come, if I set my mind on things above, then everything I do today, everything I do next week or the year or, or, or the rest of the, my life will always be based on what's going to happen today, what am I doing today, but what implications will it have for me in the future. And that's why again, Jesus warns in Mark chapter 8, he says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, but yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You see, what we do here today, in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus says, will affect what happens in the future. We can gain the whole world today, but then it, will, it, it, may, it may have implications to what happens to our future. We will lose our soul. Uh, we will give our, our present uh, wealth, but we have lost our future inheritance. And I think that's what this uh, parable about the rich man Lazarus says. The actions of the rich man jeopardize and cause him to go to hell. Now, the thing to we look, look as well, um, and is that hell is a really terrible place, isn't it? Uh, if you look here in verse uh, 22, uh, we will see that uh, it says that Abraham was by Lazarus' side and he was in comfort. Right? Lazarus is comforted. But it says here that um, the rich man, when he died, he was in hell and he was in torment. Right? In verse 23, he was in torment. And this idea is, keeps being repeated over and over in the parable. In verse 24, it says that he is in agony in this fire. In verse uh, 25, again, he is in agony. Uh, and in verse 28, again, it says there, so that the, the brothers will not come to this place of torment. Uh, the idea of to- torment is the idea of severe pain. Now, uh, I'd like to touch on this idea of hell, isn't it? Because when, you, when people think of hell... People always think of fire. Right, we, we sort of touched on that a lot when we studied Revelation chapter 19 and 20 a few weeks ago where you know, Satan and the beast and the false prophet and all those with the mark of the beast were thrown into the lake of burning fire. So that seems to have captured today people's imagination. And they always think, hell is this place of fire. You look at cartoons and everything. It's always this hot place, right? But I don't think uh, fire is the definitive image of hell. Uh, a pastor was once asked, do you really believe uh, that hell is just a place of fire? And uh, this pastor said, no, it's not just about fire. It's infinitely worse than fire. Right? And I think that's true because the Bible uses different images to, to show us about what hell is like. So, okay, we, we know that it's, you know, it's hot. Obviously, in this parable, he's, in, he's hot. He, he wants water. In uh, Revelation chapter 19 20, it's, it's, it's a lake of burning sulfur. But in here, if you look at other passages in the Bible, next slide, uh, you see that hell is, is defined as, as the blackest darkness. Okay? Fire without light, I don't know. Okay? 
So in 2 Peter 2, verse 17, it says, These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Black as darkness is reserved for them. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, it says, But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the picture of hell in the Bible is not uh, a picture given so that someday some famous artist can draw uh, what hell looks like. Or, you know, maybe Hopa Villa, they can create, you know, these uh, statues of hell or, 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 you know, monuments to hell. But I think the picture of hell is is given in different ways in the Bible uh, to show us uh, just how bad hell is. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of fire. Uh, it's a place of weeping and gnashing our teeth. Uh, weeping and gnashing our teeth is, is used in the Bible to, to describe absolute sorrow. When, when you've, you've only got one child and that child dies, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what that imagery is about. Uh, here in the parable, there's agony, torment, so all these things are meant to tell you that hell is a really, really bad place. Hell is hell. Hell is a place of suffering. But what makes it worse is, it seems as if uh, this place of suffering is a permanent place of suffering. Now, I think for, for, our, for us as modern people, we think, okay, suffering, not so bad. But, but can you imagine eternal and permanent suffering now? That's really, really terrible. But that seems to be the case here in this parable. You can't get away from it, isn't it? Because it says there, uh, quite clearly in verse 26, it says, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, when you look at this uh, phrase, there is this great chasm that has been fixed. Who fixes this great chasm? A chasm is this great valley, okay? Uncrossable. Who fixes it? Well, it, it, it's God, isn't it? God has fixed this distance between heaven and hell. And it's sort of saying that in the, in the life to come, once you're in this place, that there is no transit point. There is no crossing over. Your, your, your place is, is, is unchanged. If you're in hell, you're in hell. If you're in heaven, you're in heaven. There's no second chance. You know, you can't declare bankruptcy and start over again. You know, it's just, you're just there. And the state of suffering seems to be permanent as well because this, this rich man, all he wants is Lazarus to get a drop of water for the tip of his finger to cool his tongue. But, uh, Abraham says, look, uh, we can't even do that for you. We can't even put a, a drop of water on your tongue to relieve that suffering. So as you look at this picture, it seems like hell is really hell, as in suffering, and hell is permanent. And we find that hard to accept. Many people find that hard to accept. Maybe that's why many people don't believe in it. And I've read uh, commentators who say, you know, this can't be what we think it is. But their, their arguments are not based on what the passage is saying, but based on philosophical or moral grounds. But I think Jesus is plainly trying to say, that hell is really hell and hell is permanent. Now some people will say, well, you know, uh, isn't this very unnecessary trying to scare people this way? Right? As, a, as a pastor, is it right for you to keep talking about hell in such frightening tones? But I think it's not really uh, 
immoral to talk about hell in this way because that's what the Bible says. And the Bible is trying to warn people out of love. See, I think of my child, right? I mean, my child, I'm all, not really child, children anymore because they're about my height or bigger. But when they were small, right? My children, and I'm sure for those of you who have children, okay, at, at all about children, you warn them about things like fire, right? about not running across the road, if you live in a flat, about not climbing up the window. I mean, is it immoral to warn them about fire or running across the road or climbing up the window? No. It's not immoral. You're warning them because the, the danger is real. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. That He's trying to show that this is what hell is really like. It is really, really pure suffering. And it is permanent. And that's why, in verse 27, 31, there's, there's, a, there's an appeal to... Uh, to avoid hell at all costs. Okay, let's see what it says in verse 27. He answered, uh, this is Lazarus, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They said to him, sorry, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, it's quite a tragic story because when the reality of hell uh, comes to the rich man, he wants to save his, uh, his brothers. I know that some people say, well, you know, maybe he's got ulterior motives, all sorts of stuff. But I, I think genuinely, this parable shows that this rich man, is, is, he does have care for his brother. He does want to save his brother. There's nothing in the passage that doesn't say otherwise. You know, he genuinely does care for his brothers. And he wants to let them know, don't make the same mistake that I made. Repent of this lifestyle of loving money, of just being consumed uh, with the things of this world for your identity. But then the interesting thing is, Abraham uh, says, even if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will not repent. And he says, look, let them listen to God's word. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. Right? And, and basically, Moses and the prophets are, for them, the Bible. Because Moses was supposed to write the first five books of the Bible, and then the rest was, uh, about, you know, the prophets are saying, the New Testament is made out of the Gospels and the letters. You know, it's, it's just sort of saying the whole Bible. Right? So, Abraham saying here, look, they have the whole of the Old Testament. If they do not listen to the Old Testament, they will not listen even if someone comes back from the dead. And what he's basically saying here is that God's word, the intent or purpose of God's word is to save people from hell. Um, now, I think this is so important for us because we live in a world where we, we, we misunderstand what God's word is for. Uh, people think God's word is to help me get rich or to be blessed or to feel love or to feel better or to be fulfilled. But actually, from this parable, Jesus is saying one of the main and primary purposes of God's word is to save people from hell, to warn people uh, to avoid hell. And that's why uh, Jesus, even in his own teaching, uses uh, his own warnings to warn people to do everything to avoid hell. So in Matthew chapter 5, next slide, uh, Jesus speaks in, 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 uh, in absolute terms of how hard we must try to avoid hell. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus is not warning uh, here in terms of literal terms, right? We don't have to make appointments to see uh, our doctor, resident doctor or something to get amputations and uh, take our eyes and stuff like that. But he's trying to show in terms of just how much effort you must put into living this life so that you will avoid hell. And that's why he's saying that God's word is warning us of this eternal damnation, that we must do everything we can to avoid it. So when you reflect on this parable, after, as you read along, you, you sort of ask yourself, uh, who would you rather be? Would you rather be the rich man who wears you know, fantastic clothes, drives around in a Lamborghini, lives in a really big house, eats really good meals? Or would you rather be Lazarus? Suffering, you know, physically, suffering, uh, hungry, physically, uh, you know, economically, suffering every way. Who is the better person? Who is the most successful person in his life? Who is the person who is the one who is uh, living the blessed life? Well, in the light of God's word, in the light of eternity, it is Lazarus. Surprising. Lazarus is the one that we would rather be, I would rather be Lazarus than the rich man. Uh, anybody here would prefer to be the rich man? Well, if you prefer to be the rich man, then you haven't understood what Jesus is saying, right? Lazarus is the one who is the, the one who depends on God, who God helps. He is the one who is blessed in the end because he lives by Abraham's side in eternity, in heaven. And I think as we read here as well, uh, again, God is not uh, somebody who is very happy to send people to hell. Right? Some people have a mistaken image of God as someone who is really happy. Oh, that's another one in hell. You know, that's really great. You know, it makes his day when people go to hell. No. Because if you look at the verse 25 again, it says that Abraham speaks to um, the rich man in quite a tender, comforting, compassionate tone. Isn't it? He says, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Uh, the word here, son, is a term of uh, tenderness, compassion. And I think that that's the, the attitude that we find in the Bible to, to those who are going to hell. Um, if you look at various passages in the Bible from, about God, about Jesus, about the apostles, they all felt great sadness and tenderness to those who would not repent and we're going to hell. So here, up on the slide, you see Ezekiel chapter 18. And this is what God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Ezekiel chapter 18. And this is what Jesus says as he looks over Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem! You who kill the prophets and stone those, who, uh, those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Oh, this is what uh, the Apostle Paul says about the Jews who refuse to believe in Jesus. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish from I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, these of my own race, the people of Israel. 
You see, once you know the reality of hell, it's, it's impossible not to have compassion for people who are going to suffer for eternity. And, and, and that's what it says here, isn't it? That, that there is a, there's, a, there's a note of sadness when Abraham speaks to, uh, to Lazarus. Oh, sorry, to the rich man. So as we look at this passage, uh, God loves us and He gives us His word to warn us. But, okay, this is a bit cheap, right? This is a bit difficult. But actually, when you read this as a Christian today, when you read the Bible, the parable actually works at a different level for us as Christians as to the original crowd. Okay, so look at the passage carefully. When you look at the passage, Jesus speaks to the crowd and He says, oh, you know, uh, I've got this parable for you. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. I will not send Lazarus back. Even if a man rises from the dead and goes to them, they will not repent. But then now as we read it, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's got a different meaning. Because we know that when Jesus spoke this parable, he knew that there was someone who was going to die and to rise again. And who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus himself knows that he is the one who dies and rises again. And He's the one that's also referred to in that parable. And this parable, in a sense, looks forward to a time where someone from the dead does go and rise and warns them again of hell. So not only do we, uh, in this side of the cross, have God's word which warns us of hell, but we also have someone who's gone and died and risen again to, to warn us about hell. But it also, I think, tells us, of, uh, as we understand what hell is all about, of just what Jesus does when he goes to the cross. You see, many people uh, will, will say to you, if you ever try to evangelize people and you, they're, they're seriously thinking about it, they'll say, oh, you know, I can't believe in hell because hell is not about the God of love. How can God be loving if, uh, if he sends people to hell? How can you have judgment and the God of love? Alright, so uh, there was a famous atheist, Bertrand Russell, who said this, I don't myself believe that any person who is holy and profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Uh, It is a doctrine that puts cruelty into our world. And that's what many atheists believe. Uh, Many people who don't believe in God say, well, I can't believe in hell because it is not a loving God and I only want to believe in a loving God. But I think... uh, Understanding hell actually makes us appreciate all the more what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So there's a very famous preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, he used this illustration. He said, imagine a friend uh, comes to your house one day and he says to you, Oh, while I was there, you weren't there yet. And uh, the postman came and I paid a bill. A bill arrived for you and I paid the bill for you. How would you respond uh, to your friend? Well, you have to ask your friend, well, exactly what did you pay? Right? Uh, if you're waiting in my house and the, and the postman came and the postman said to you, oh, there is a, a, a letter which came to you but the sender didn't put enough stamps. You're short 50 cents and your friend paid for it. Well, then you say to your friend, well, you know, thanks a lot for the 50 cents, right? Uh, maybe you're paying back, but no big deal, right? But what happens if um, your friend happened to be there and a letter came and there's a traffic fine? The traffic fine was like $200 or something. And your friend paid for it. He said, okay, that's, that's even better, right? My friend, he's quite a nice guy. He paid for my traffic fine. What happens if uh, you're there and the, you're at your friend's house and uh, that, sorry, the friend was waiting there and you weren't there and, and a bill came and the, uh, the, the tax office 
found out that you haven't paid your taxes for the last 10 years and your friend paid for your taxes for the last 10 years plus the fine. Well, then you say, wow, your friend was really, really generous because he paid for those 10 years of, of taxes and all the fines. Well, you see, unless you understand what hell is really like, you don't understand what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Uh, you don't understand how much God has loved you. Because Jesus, when He dies on the cross, He saves us from an eternity of punishment in hell. Isn't that right? That's what Jesus does on the cross for us. He pays for our eternity in hell. Uh, All the sins that we've done, all the wrongs that we've done. That's what Jesus does for us at the cross. And that's why the understanding of hell is so important because if we don't understand hell, then we don't understand what Jesus has done has done for us. We're not thankful because we don't understand what he's actually done. So here, as we look at the, the last word on this parable, I guess we not only do we have the words of the Bible, not only do we have Jesus who's come back from the dead, but we also know what Jesus has done for us. So all the more we need to hold on to Jesus uh, to avoid hell. So in conclusion, uh, I said in the introduction that uh, you know, the world is embarrassed about hell and listening about hell and talking about hell. But the problem is that many churches today as well are embarrassed about talking about hell. Uh, you can go to many churches today and hear many sermons and uh, all they, they preach on from the Bible is about uh, the now. Uh, God blessing you, God giving you prosperity, God giving you achievement. God giving you fulfillment and meaning and peace. But by, by preaching all about the now, they've forgotten that the most important thing is actually the future. They've forgotten that the most important thing is to save people from hell. And if you don't take uh, hell seriously, then Christianity is, is just a way of living just like any other way of living. Uh, it is just another way of getting, uh, going through this life and having blessings. You know, you can go to a temple and you can also pray for your exam results just as you can go to church and pray to God for your exam results. What's the difference, right? But you see, Jesus is different because only Jesus can save you from hell. Only Jesus, being in Jesus, can can take away all your sins. And if there is hell, then you recognize that the way you live today is so important because it affects what happens to your eternity. Uh, That every decision you make has a long-term, eternal perspective. The job you take, the friends you hang out with, uh, who you marry, what country you live in, whatever you do, all these things have eternal perspective. If you measure it only in a worldly way, right, the most important thing is how much does it pay whether I'll be happy, whether it gives me fulfillment. But if you see things from an eternal perspective, then the decisions you make are where will I end up eternally if I make this decision? Uh, the saddest thing is one of my friends before, uh, he took a very high paying job. Uh, he had no time for Bible study, no time for church. And uh, yes, he, you know, from a worldly perspective, he's very engaged in his work. He's very happy at work. He gets paid a lot for it. But from an eternal perspective, it is a bad choice because it is giving up uh, you know, his eternity and he'll end up in hell. But I think this passage is a warning, this parable is a warning. What we do here today matters in the future. Now, if you're not a believer, then actually is, this passage is good news for you, isn't it? Because you are one of the five brothers. There is still time for you. There is still time for you because your eternal destination is still up for grabs. It is still for you to decide. It is too late for the rich man. You know, in hell, 
you, you, you can't do anything about it. You're already there. This is great chasm. You're far away from the other side. And that's the tragedy of this story, isn't it? Because this rich man realized too late. So if you're not a believer, then this is like uh, God's or Jesus' personal memo to you, isn't it? Make sure you get it right before it's too late. Make sure you are like the five brothers and you listen to what God's word says. Listen and take heed to the warning of eternal life. You know, some people say to, to me, oh, you know, unless God comes in some supernatural form and gives me a message, uh, you know, I, I can't believe in, you know, believe in Jesus. But the Bible says here, every time you open up the Bible, uh, you stand at the gates of heaven and hell. God is warning you. So I'd like to leave you with uh, this quote by C.S. Lewis. He always says things very much better than I can. So I'll just put it up here. Right, he says, In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation. Not of our enemies, nor of our friends, uh, since both these disturb the reason, but of ourselves. This chapter is not about your wife or your son, nor about Nero or G- Judas Iscariot, it's about you and me. So you see, when, when we talk about hell, you know, don't worry about uh, all your great-great-great-grandfather in China, whether they're in heaven or hell, right? Or whether, you know, whether it's fair for all these people. Not worry about yourself. Right? Have you taken the warning of hell seriously? Do you realize that hell is really hell? And hell is permanent. And what you do now makes a difference. That if you hold on to Jesus, uh, you will be in heaven and you will not be in hell. Because hell is real. And what we do here is important and we need to keep holding on to Jesus. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, (coughs) as we come before you today, truly help us to see the eternal realities That hell is really hell. It is real suffering forever and ever and ever. That uh, we may not like it, we may not agree with it, we may feel it is unfair, but help us to see that it is real. And as we see that it is real, we want to thank you for Jesus, because through Jesus you have saved us from hell. Help us to realize what he has paid for us, that he has paid for our eternity in hell with his death. He has taken all our sins on His flesh on the cross. And dear Father, help us to see that what we do today makes a difference for eternity. That our decisions make a difference to where we will reside permanently after death. And help us all the more to hold on to Jesus and to live rightly before You and to always walk in Your path, neither turning to the left or the right. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.